Welcome to episode 32 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Once the iron grip of the Hayes Code began to censor what Sassmouth Dames could say on screen in 1934, an unexpected place to find gaps, a space where women could explore subversive ideas, especially when they rankled against sexual double standards or voiced any truths about women's sexuality, could be found in a musical production. In Hollywood musicals, women could often sing what they could not say. Set to music, a woman could hit upon transgressive notes that would be smoothed over in delivery, made palatable by melody. For example, in Kiss Me Kate from 1953, Ann Miller's song Always True to You in My Fashion is one of the raciest declarations of promiscuity from the era. In the song, it sounds less of a bombshell on norms of a gender binary, which demand that women become sexually exclusive. Had she spoken in regular dialogue about all the men she accepts invitations from, the production code office would have exploded. The same goes for Gloria Graham's chorus, I'm Just a Girl Who Can't Say No, from Oklahoma in 1955. I doubt tickets would have sold for Doris Day leading factory workers to complain about a pay rise in Pajama Game from 1957, but set it to a tune and folks form an orderly queue at the box office. Music and choreography lend whimsy to protests and deep confessionals. It's hard to be disgruntled when you're snapping your fingers. In one sense, then, songs can be far more radical than the standard dialogue because they're easier to commit to memory, reproduce, and repurpose. Who among us hasn't imitated a few bars of Mitzi Gaines' version of I'm Gonna Wash That Man Right Out of My Hair from South Pacific? All the bits about what women desire often hide inside a musical verse. Down Argentine Way from 1940 is really about women's sexual pleasure. For me, the voice that best captures orgasmic pleasure more than any other is Carmen Miranda in Down Argentine Way. Her voice unfurls and beckons to be heard. Carmen Miranda offered an uncensored voice of what women sound like when they're aroused and delighted. It does not matter if the audience speaks Portuguese. Viewers identify the intention, the tone and tenor of her lyrics. The South American way, which she playfully pronounces South American way, is libidinous, daring, and exciting. She peppers the songs with a string of ay, 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 which sounds like the sassmouth dame's call to arms, the arms of a tall, dark stranger, that is. Carmen's ay, ay has been copied across generations from the scene in Mildred Pierce from 1945, when Kay performs an impression of Carmen done up with lip rouge and a flower in her hair as she sings the siren song. Woody Allen also borrows it to set the mood of the time and era when his on-screen aunt performs a rendition of Carmen's song in Radio Days from 1987. What an opening. They don't make us wait for the good stuff. Instead of exposition, the opening scene grants us the spectacle of Carmen Miranda performing South American Way. Carmen opens the picture uh, before we get any plot, setting, or dialogue. Her song is untranslated. She sings in Portuguese, but there is one line of English, the South American Way. 
Carmen remained incredulous that the theater and film audiences would go crazy for her songs when they couldn't understand the lyrics. Her playful pronunciation cuts the TH sound off the end of South, adding the cultural exchange. Carmen does not mispronounce the word. She reinterprets it. She appropriates it. She changes it, makes it new, and produces a better effect. But it's important to note here that Carmen Miranda was already a sensation before she ever appeared in this picture. Carmen Miranda was already an unrivaled star in Brazil and Argentina. She had recorded 280 songs from 1930 to 1939. She was a regular star on the stage and radio. It wouldn't be accurate to say, as some have, that Lee Schubert discovered her as she performed in a karaoke casino. In 1939, Broadway producer Lee Schubert traveled to Rio de Janeiro and caught one of her acts. He was with Sonia Henney, who raved over Miranda's costumes and songs. Carmen Miranda's biographer, Martha Gil Montero, reports that Henney said to Schubert that if he didn't bring Carmen to New York, she would. They went backstage to meet Carmen. She was soon under contract to appear in his new ensemble show, The Streets of Paris, on Broadway. Carmen quickly became the toast of Broadway. One of her biggest thrills was when Garbo turned up backstage to offer her congratulations. Schubert and fellow Broadway producers had been resigned to a quiet box office that summer of 1939 because the World Fair was in town and was a much greater lure for patrons. But New York audiences turned out for Carmen right from opening night. The Streets of Paris was a smash hit. Carmen's biographer notes that she took her American success in stride. When Carmen noticed that she had sparked a fashion craze, she mildly observed that it seemed as though her style were catching on. In New York City, Saks Fifth Avenue dressed its window displays in her Biana style. Macy's sold silk and rayon turbans for $3 and made affordable versions of her bangles and necklaces. The South American way was in vogue. When Daryl Zanuck wanted to put Carmen under contract for the picture, Lee Schubert resisted and held her to her contract. When she was eventually signed, Schubert took a percentage of her salary, just as the studios pocketed fees from loanouts of their stars to other studios. Carmen Miranda had a special clause in her contract for Fox. It stipulated that her musical numbers could not be cut for reaction shots from other actors, nor could they insert dialogue into her songs. In a way, it rivals Fred Astaire's emphasis that the camera remain on him while he was dancing. Even though Carmen's numbers are separated from the plot, they establish an integral mood for the film that wouldn't exist otherwise. She doesn't interact with any of the other players in this film, but it creates more emphasis on the dramatic impact of her singing and dancing. Carmen introduced the Samba to American audiences. Martha Gil Montero explains that the samba developed in the 1800s onwards in Brazil from Africans enslaved and brought to the New World, primarily by men and women from Angola and the Congo, who used drum circles for celebration and ceremony. The music's name derives from the Angolese word semba, which was synonymous with prayer, but also with umbugada, a term for sexualized dance. In Congolese, samba was synonymous with prayer. Scholars also note a possible Arabic root to the word for psalm, which notes movement or dance, and ba, a thing that falls or moves down. 
The roots of samba trace back to the sugar plantations in Brazil. During Carnival, the significance of samba was most often embodied by the Afro-Brazilian cultural activities that were a large degree led by women. The Baiana is a term for the women of Carnival who conducted the processions. The most influential Bayanas become Tias, women who were the ants or festive aunties who led Carnival in elaborate costume. Bayanas wore traditional costume that included a turban or elaborate head wrap that was often designated as a platform to transport the goods that she sold as vendor. Bayanas sold fruit and vegetables or other goods. She wore ropes of beads, cowrie shells, or coral around her neck, and a wide hoop skirt. Scarves worn over the shoulder and around the hips were also part of traditional dress. The first samba was recorded in 1916. It was called Pelo Telefono. Carmen started her career as a milliner, which comes as no surprise from a woman who became a fashion icon for her headgear. Carmen did for turbans what Joan Crawford did for shoulders and eyebrows. Like many young women in Brazil, Carmen and her sister Aurora had access to magazines, film, and radio, which were heavily influenced by the style set in Hollywood. She was adept at blending anglicized glamour with the traditions of the Brazilian Baiana. In other words, Carmen fused the traditional costumes with a Hollywood makeover. She cropped the tops, though, of the traditional costume to expose a small peak of skin from above the waist to underneath the breasts. Skirts were streamlined and slim rather than full and hooped, with added cutouts below the waist across the hips. She presents a flashy nightclub version of ceremonial dress. Whimsical designs appear to embellish turbans, everything from flowers, fruit, butterflies, feathers, baskets, jewels, bows, and even a miniature lighthouse at one point. Think about the balancing act that this tiny woman did in each number. She would dance in six or eight inch heavy platform shoes, carry a great weight on her head from the elaborately dressed turbans, not to mention the load of bracelets, necklaces, and rings she wore. All told, I bet a Miranda ensemble nearly matched her weight on a scale. Carmen once told the press that her weaknesses were, quote, money, men, and macaroni. But her real weakness was work. It's reasonable to suggest that Carmen adopted a workaholic routine because of the poverty she knew and feared as a child. But her schedule was taxing, to say the least. She didn't complain about the hours like Hollywood stars might, perhaps in fear that if she turned down a job, it would be her last. Since Carmen could not join the production in Fox Studios in Hollywood, she filmed her sequences in New York. In addition to her appearance on stage in the streets of Paris, she had side gigs for hotels and nightclubs in the city. She would squeeze a nightclub routine in between the acts in the Broadhurst Theater where the Streets of Paris was playing. Not including matinee productions of the show, Carmen and her band began their workday before 8 every night. Then they shuttled around various stages to perform until 4 in the morning. Often they would have 2 or 3 hours of sleep before they were required to be on set in the morning to start filming for Down Argentine Way. She was so overworked that she collapsed more than once during the film set, canceling the the day's shoot, but she still had to fulfill her evening contracts. 
No doubt the grind of work and lack of proper rest is one of the reasons that she died so young at the age of 46. She collapsed during a broadcast of Jimmy Durante's show in 1955, but pro that she was, she finished the number, and then she died later at home in her sleep of a heart attack. Despite her tragic death, Carmen Miranda's imprint on film, music, fashion, and karaoke legends is immeasurable. Catherine Bishop Sanchez's elegant study of Carmen Miranda's cultural impact, entitled Creating Carmen Miranda, Sex, Camp, and Transnational Stardom, is a must-read. She collects the Carmen Miranda impressions that pop up as regularly as florals in spring. Her style has become immortal. Originally, the rest of the cast was set to star Alice Faye and Desi Arnaz. But Alice Faye was run down from the studio schedule and bowed out. Desi Arnaz also had to miss out on what would have been his big break. Don Amici was a perfect replacement. He scored a major hit in Midnight the previous year with Claudette Colbert. He also has a passion for horses and the track. He looks as comfortable in jodhpurs as William Powell did in a dressing gown. Put Don Amici in the League of Mustache Babes, by the way. Carmen's Sassmouth co-star was Betty Grable, who had spent 10 years in Hollywood taking bit parts and parts as extras in supporting roles. Grable, like Carmen Miranda, became a major star after this film was released. Betty Grable stayed in the top box office for 10 years until 1951, a record that hasn't been beaten by any other woman in Hollywood. Of all Betty Grable's films, Down Argentine Way had the biggest impact. In Betty Grable, The Girl with the Million Dollar Legs by Tom McGee, the author reports that the makeup department in Fox initially had trouble finding the right look for her, and that stalled her tests. They had mixed a foundation that was too heavy, leading to a dull complexion. Once they dialed down the foundation, the makeup artist achieved success with a light base and blush. Betty was a knockout all on her own. For Betty's song, Down Argentina Way, her fantasy takes center stage. Think about it. She meets Don Amici, sings him a song about her sexual fantasy, and then she travels 6,000 miles just to hook up with him and make it happen. Let's be clear how subversive it was in 1940 for a woman to pursue a man who is the object of her desire. She doesn't moon or pine for him or wait for him to ring her. She flies there to make it happen. She's not desperate, nor has she lost the run of herself. She's determined. She tells him what she wants. She sings what she cannot say. She wants him to make love to her under a pompous moon. Betty Grable's evening ensembles mirror the style challenge that Carmen Miranda poses. She wears bright crop tops with long, slim skirts. She's confident and bold. For another song, when she does the conga with a bump, her face betrays a bit of surprise in mid-shimmy, like she can't even believe herself. But she doesn't backpedal or become demure. She will have her fling. It's such a refreshing depiction of a woman who doesn't have to explain or excuse what she wants. Even the character actor Charlotte Greenwood, who plays Aunt Benny Crawford, who accompanies Betty Grable's Glenda Crawford to Argentina, gets in on the act. When Leonid Kinsky turns up as a paid escort and boasts about the glowing reviews he's received from women, the aunt pushes her niece aside to take advantage of the dashing gigolo. 
What's a little cash exchange for fantasies rendered? Men have been doing it for ages. Why shouldn't Aunt Binny get her kicks? Down Argentine Way was produced by Daryl Zanuck. Daryl Zanuck started his long and powerful career in Hollywood writing dog pictures. That's right, he wrote Rintin Tin scripts for Warner Studio. Jack Warner, in his memoir, said that Rintin Tin was the only actor in the studio who never gave a bad performance. Zanuck's star rose through the silence so that by the time Warner's pioneered talking pictures, he had sold so many stories to the studio for a nominal fee of $1 that investors complained about the budget for writers at Warner's, since they only seemed to have one writer on their payroll, Daryl Zanuck. As a workaround, Zanuck adopted three different pen names to use in his work for Warner's, including Mark Canfield, which appears in the credits for the ultimate pre-code woman's picture, Babyface, from 1933. By the eve of the Second World War, Zanuck was vice president of Fox Studio. Two tricks he learned from Jack Warner continued to shape his career. The first was recycle every property you could from scripts to costumes and sets. The second was to pull from the headlines for script ideas. Zanuck had developed a keen eye for the news. He had long looked to current events to shape the stories that he put on film. It's one of the key traits that allowed him to move from writing dog pictures to running a Hollywood studio. He was well experienced in scanning the news for current events to gain purchase on box office receipts. The Warner's gangster pictures, featuring men like James Cagney, Edward G. Robinson, George Raft, and Humphrey Bogart, among others, were all tailor-made from a hot news cycle of Depression-era crime stories of bootleggers and showgirls. When President Franklin Roosevelt announced his administration's good neighbor policy, Zanuck jumped on it. Roosevelt based an allegiance of common good for North and South American hemisphere. It established a new diplomatic importance for South America with the United States. Zanuck sensed that with the war on in Europe, it shrank distribution for Fox, so he set inroads for new markets in South America with Down Argentine Way. Zanuck recycled the script of Kentucky, a production from 1938, and gave it to John O'Hara to update to the new locale. The basic premise of the original was a Romeo and Juliet story set in the horse racing circuit, starring Loretta Young. In his biography, Don't Say Yes Until I Finish Talking, a biography of Daryl Zanuck, Mel Gusso points out that the vice president of Fox grabbed the opportunity to retell the story in a new setting. When Zanuck signed Carmen Miranda, she was still under contract to Schubert, so her scenes were shot in New York. All the other scenes were shot on the Fox lot in Hollywood. A small satellite crew spent a month in Argentina shooting exterior footage for the film. Although the picture was an enormous hit in the United States, it received harsh critical reception in South America. It was banned outright in Argentina, and it was deemed deeply offensive. In Brazil, the picture also received negative reviews. When Miranda returned to Rio de Janeiro and did a nightclub act after the film wrapped, she was the subject of negative reviews and was considered a false Biana utterly affected from her year in the United States. The list of objections from Argentine critics included the fact that Carmen Miranda sang in Portuguese and English rather than Spanish. They hated that the Argentines spoke in broken English. 
the music drew from the Caribbean tradition, such as the rumba. Betty Grable's conga had bumps in it, which was not traditional. Props like castanets were not authentic, nor did Argentine women wear mantillas and combs as the Spaniards did. The men in the picture were dressed as gauchos, a costume that was reserved for Argentine cowboys, rather than what was customary for the wealthy equine crowd. Zanuck admitted that maybe in the future they should pay greater attention to cultural specifics. This was the biggest hit of the year for 20th Century Fox. It ranked 14 at the box office and spanned a huge trend for all things Latin America in the United States. Usually, I hold my nose over a Bosley Crowther review from the New York Times. In this case, his take on the picture when it opened in 1940 simultaneously drools over Betty Grable and insults her acting. He does have this one really good quip, though, when he talks about Daryl Zanuck. Quote, being a Daryl F. Zanuck production, there is a horse race climax and three or four colorful parades of horse flesh, you know, instead of showgirls. He may be indelicate, but there can be an argument made for Hollywood productions that insert long legs for dramatic impact, as he notes with a racehorse or a chorus line. Judging from the gossip included in that book, The Fixers, by E.J. Fleming, which has a description of Zanuck's habit of shuttering his office every day at four o'clock for sex with one of the women on the Fox lot, Zanuck probably treated the thoroughbreds with greater respect than the women like Carol Landis, who were the unfortunate apple of his eye. There's a world of difference between hiring a gigolo and sexual coercion in the workplace. Zanuck almost made a big mistake with this production. He had originally wanted to cut the length of the big dance number from Harold and Fayard Nicholas. Luckily, when it was shown to a preview audience, the crowd went so wild in applause. As a result, the projectionist had to rewind the film because the next scene was entirely lost from the cheers for the Nicholas brothers. I'm going to offer yet another example for why pictures must be viewed on a big screen. I can't imagine how many things I would have missed had I watched this three times on my phone or even my laptop. On a big screen, you notice things at a deeper level. The dance numbers, the costumes, the staging, and the set design come into sharper relief at a larger scale. I would have easily missed a detail on the small screen, the lipstick. On a big screen, I notice that the same coral shade of lip rouge appears on almost every woman in the cast. The coral hue certainly calls to mind tropical reefs and locale, but it's uncanny that all the women wear it. Carmen, Betty, Charlotte, and the extras all wear the same shade of lipstick. I wonder if this was another of Zanuck's cost-cutting measures that he learned from his years in Warners. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for episode 33 when I take a look at Veronica Lake and Renee Claire's I Married a Witch from 1942.